It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Alan Rusbridge, editor of Prospect. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Peter Ricketts, a crossbench peer, former ambassador to France and former permanent undersecretary at the Foreign Office. And today we're going to discuss uh, a really fascinating piece Peter has written for Prospect uh, on the website, headlined How to Negotiate a Ceasefire. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Alan. We're, we're talking on day 31 of the um, the, the war between uh, Israel and we have to be careful here because some people object to the phraseology of Israel and Hamas but uh, whether it's Israel and Gaza and this, this piece uh, anticipates that there will be a ceasefire but um, talks about the conditions that have to be met in in advance. Can you first of all say what does a ceasefire actually mean because there's some confusion over terminology? Yes. Uh, I mean, when I think about wars ending, my default tends to be the Second World War. Victory for the Allies, unconditional surrender for the enemies, uh, a completely new page and building again. But most wars don't end like that. And for me, the crucial thing about a ceasefire and the difference between that and a humanitarian pause, which is what we're hearing a great deal about on the news, is that a ceasefire does require some degree of agreement between the two parties, some acceptance that they will stop fighting, that they've achieved all that they can. Uh, it means that neither side accept defeat or, or recognize complete victory. But if there isn't some agreement between the parties to cease, then all you can hope for is a brief humanitarian pause that one side or the other can decide to put in force. So a ceasefire is not a full peace settlement, but it is some kind of agreement between the two sides to stop fighting, at least for now. Now, you set three tests for a ceasefire. And, and the first is that the, the, the people who are fighting are ready to stop fighting. And uh, in this war, you don't think we've yet reached that point? It certainly doesn't feel like that to me. Netanyahu in Israel has set a goal of destroying Hamas. I personally think that that is just not doable because Hamas is more than just a military organization. It's a 
popular political movement. It delivers um, social welfare services in Gaza. Um, but nonetheless, that's his war aim. Um, and he's also set a condition that all the hostages should be released before a, a ceasefire comes into force. We don't know what Hamas's war aims were. Um, they're an amorphous organization, not a state. But it doesn't feel to me like Hamas uh, wants to lay down arms either. So no, I don't think that the first condition for negotiating a ceasefire exists, nor does it, by the way, in Ukraine, uh, the second major war going on at the moment. Uh, in both those cases, I think uh, we are some way from the point where the belligerents say, we can't achieve any more, or we are exhausted, and we therefore now want to find a way of stopping the fighting. Can you talk a bit about the preconditions? Because um, Netanyahu is saying that he, he won't agree to a ceasefire until uh, Hamas has given up its hostages. And this must have echoes for you of, of previous situations. I, I remember the negotiations over peace in Northern Ireland and, and whether uh, the IRA and other militant groups had to uh, put their weapons beyond use before they would even sit down and talk. Exactly. I think the problem with negotiating a ceasefire is that each side tends to come to the table when they come to the table, with uh, incompatible conditions. So yes, in the case of um, Israel and Gaza, uh, Netanyahu quite reasonably and rightly wants to see the release of all the hostages, but the hostages are the bargaining currency that Hamas holds uh, in a very cynical way. They're holding human lives as part of a future negotiation. They've done that before. Hamas, uh, for their part, have said that they would only release the hostages if all the Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails were released. And uh, I saw a figure of about 5,000 from a UN special rapporteur uh, that, that they gave in the summer. Um, and again, Israel is absolutely not going to do that. So there are incompatible uh, conditions being set by both sides. In most wars, there are conditions and it requires a, some sort of negotiation to bring both sides to recognize they will not uh, fulfill all that they want. They will not get the conditions they're setting. They will have to settle for something less. And that something less is what uh, is the second requirement for ceasefire, which is a, a an interlocutor um, with the uh, standing and the respect to achieve that. We'll come on to number two in a second, but just talk about the timing, because in your article you say if you're if you're pressured into agreeing a ceasefire too soon, it just breaks down and that undermines confidence on all sides. We've seen that in the past, um, in previous wars and conflicts, including in the Middle East, there have been ceasefires more or less imposed by the Americans usually, uh, which haven't stuck. Uh, and which have broken down in renewed fighting within a few days. And that that is thoroughly bad for confidence on all sides, because if a ceasefire doesn't work, then both sides will be more wary next time to agree one and more inclined to go on fighting. So the question of timing is a very difficult diplomatic judgment. Um, when should the external parties really ramp up the pressure to the maximum on the belligerents to stop fighting, uh, recognizing that if they do it too soon, as I say, it could it could actually put the prospects for peace back by further destroying any confidence that there may be. You're reading the newspapers the same as everyone else, and you've seen everyone from the Pope and the Secretary General of the United Nations asking for a humanitarian pause. Can you give examples 
from your mind of humanitarian pauses in the past and when they have worked and what the problems are with them? In many wars, there have been humanitarian pauses. I mean, even if you go back to the First World War uh, in 1914, there was a Christmas truce allowing the um, opposing forces in the trenches to have Christmas Day off, uh, even to play football on no man's land at one point, and then to go back to bitter fighting the following day. Uh, and that's been true in, in many wars. Uh, it's been true in the wars of the Middle East in the past, um, that the guns fell silent for a day or two to allow humanitarian um, action, to allow wounded um, soldiers off the battlefield or civilians uh, and then fighting resumed. So it's a fairly regular feature of wars. And uh, I think it it's going to happen in the case of Israel and Gaza. Uh, and I think it's not very far away now when even the Americans are pressing very strongly for it and are um, openly disagreeing with Netanyahu uh, in press conferences about the need for a humanitarian pause, then I think the point where it's going to be declared here uh, is is now very close. So moving on to your, your second requirement, the, the honest broker. In your article, you list previous examples nearly always involving America uh, in the shuttle diplomacy in uh, 1982, uh, the withdrawal from the PLO from Lebanon, Yom, Yom Kippur, Bosnia, Kosovo, uh, even Northern Ireland, nearly always it's had to be the, the, the US that's been the honest broker. What is different this time? Part of what is different this time is the uh, position and influence of America in the world and America's willingness to take on this thankless task that, as you say, they have so often played in the past. Um, in addition to the Middle East wars, I have in mind um, a very close shave between Israel and Pak uh, between India and Pakistan uh, in 1999-2000, uh, where they very, very nearly came to open war. And again, uh, the Americans piled in and shuttled between the capitals and avoided uh, open conflict. It requires an American administration that is prepared to really put in the effort uh, and take the risk of um, trying to bring both sides to, to the table. And in the past, they classically have played that role. Not only do they have the political and economic weight and authority, but the willingness to deploy military force. I mean, we've seen that, for example, in the Balkans, where when uh, Bill Clinton was finally persuaded to intervene to stop the ethnic cleansing in Bosnia, and there was then NATO-led America leading NATO military action um, uh, in order to create the conditions for Milosevic to come to the table and to the Dayton Peace Conference in, in 1995. And rather, the same thing happened in Kosovo. So the combination of military muscle, uh, economic power, and diplomatic um, throw weight uh, often gave the Americans that leading role. Now, the American role in the world is very contested. Uh, and indeed, the story in the Middle East in the months before this um, terrible terrorist atrocity followed by the Israeli response was of um, Saudi Arabia um, striking a deal with Iran uh, under Chinese auspices, Russia uh, increasing its activity, for example, in Syria. So a sense of America pulling back from the international leadership role they've played. But in the Israel-Gaza crisis, it has been um, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who has shuttled around the capitals, put in the diplomatic hard yards, 
with President Biden uh, putting in a lot of effort as well. So America is back as a major arbiter, but it can't be the only one uh, when it comes to brokering a ceasefire in Gaza, because while America is probably the only country with real influence over Israel, there will need to be others who can speak for Hamas and, and represent the Palestinian interest. And that's likely to involve Egypt and Qatar. Well, those are the two that spring to mind for me. Qatar, because uh, they have bankrolled Hamas with tacit Israeli agreement over the years um, to set up Hamas as an uh, alternative to the Palestinian Authority. Um, Qatar is where Hamas leadership have their external HQ. So therefore, the Qataris, I think, are are, uh, inevitable players in this. Egypt, as the the neighbour, as um, the other side of the Rafa crossing, uh, an essential party. There could be others as well, countries like Turkey, for example. But in any case, I think there needs to be a group of countries who, between them, can represent the interests of both sides. Talking about America, I'm wondering how America looks to you as the the sort of force that... um it was in the past. You've you've got an aging uh, president, uh, severely flawed um, rival candidate. You've got a, a pretty dysfunctional Congress. Um, they're already heavily involved in Ukraine uh, to the extent that it's not clear they've got the ammunition supplies to carry on or the political will to carry on in Ukraine. If you were watching America from, I don't know, Tehran, Moscow, or Beijing. Um, how, how do you think it looks? I mean, the story of America in the world, uh, in the sense of conflict management over the last 20 years, has been one of pulling back ever since the trauma of um, the Iraq war in 2003. Uh, there's been an impression of America on the retreat, um, in the end, pulling back from Iraq, um, pulling back from a failed mission in Afghanistan. Um, not being prepared to take the lead over the Libya air campaign, uh, then the humiliating final pullout from Afghanistan in the early period of President Biden. Um, A constant sense of retreat from the sort of international um, load-bearing that they had done in the past. But it has been remarkable to see with the uh, wars in Ukraine and now in Gaza, how America has come back to a sense of having to lead in its own interests. So, America has been the leading Western country in Ukraine, without doubt, both in terms of arms supplies and economic support. And in Gaza, as I was saying, it's been the indispensable actor um, putting in the effort to try to keep the conflict contained, avoid it spreading to be a regional war. You've seen no sign of the Chinese foreign minister doing that, certainly not the Russian foreign minister. The Iranians are in their corner, fairly passive, looking to see how they might take Um, unilateral advantage in some way or the other, but are absolutely not part of any uh, action to try to limit the damage. And so, in a way, America has shown that it is still uh, an indispensable part of um, international crisis management efforts. And, And the other countries are simply not prepared to push themselves forward. They've all got more limited national interests. It is true that this is a pretty unprecedented combination of uh, two major conflicts going on at the same time with a huge and long-term confrontation taking shape between the US and China for a challenge, a, a competition for leadership in Asia and future technology. 
and the American domestic situation, governance in America is not at, at its best. I mean, uh, I, I was a diplomat, so I'll say it diplomatically like that. Um, uh, the future is very uncertain in Washington, I think, and you know the polls as we speak are, uh, you know, suggesting that in in many swing states Trump is ahead for the 2024 election race. I often think, Alan, where would we have been if uh, Putin had decided to invade Ukraine while Trump was in the White House? We would certainly not have had the same degree of Western coordination and resolve as we have had. Um, and if he was there in the case of the Israel-Gaza war, I don't think we'd see anything like the diplomatic effort now being put in. So uh, the future is very, very uncertain in Washington. And while we've had a spurt of American leadership over the last couple of years, we can't any of us be sure that that will continue. After the break, we'll talk more about how to negotiate a ceasefire. But first, I'd like to tell you about a new offer our marketing people have created that allows you to enjoy Prospects Journalism for a full month, absolutely free. Take advantage of our new one month's free trial offer and you can read all the magazine's best long reads, commentary and cultural criticism with new writing added daily to our website as well as the entire 28-year archive. Sign up now at subscribe.prospectmagazine.co.uk slash MediaConfPod. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Your third condition for a ceasefire is that you need the international supervision if it's to last. Um, now, the UN uh, is not. Um, on good terms with Israel at the moment. So um, who is this international group that is uh, up to the task or willing to uh, supervise uh, a, a potential ceasefire? I mean, you make a really important point on the UN because uh, traditionally the UN has been the organization that can come in after conflict um, put the pieces back together, set up an interim administration, um, help to in initially govern um, a country or a territory as it emerges from conflict, um, set up arrangements for an election, 
uh, oversee the humanitarian and the reconstruction support. The UN is very good at that. UN peacekeeping um, organization and, and the UN sort of civil administration side, they did a remarkable job under very difficult circumstances in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, and in many other conflicts. But I think they're on the sidelines. I mean, not least because Israel is at daggers drawn with the UN Secretary General uh, calling for his resignation a few weeks ago. Israel would not trust the UN, I think. Um, we've heard just in the last day or two from uh, Netanyahu that he intends that Israel will provide the security in Gaza for some time to come. And I read that as meaning uh, an Israeli military occupation of Gaza, which we've had in the past, hasn't ended well in the past, but nonetheless, that's what they seem to have in mind. But they're not saying anything about who will actually run Gaza, who will organize basic services, sanitation, health, education. Um, no indication of thinking about that. My only, uh, the, th the only solution I can come up with is some sort of coalition of the moderate Arab countries who've got the financial heft to put money into reconstruction of that devastated territory and perhaps to run basic services, um, maybe in conjunction with the Palestinian Authority, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, um, who is nominally uh, in charge of the West Bank, although that is also now heavily uh, influenced by the Israeli military occupation. But that sort of construct of um, Palestinian Authority plus the moderate Arabs as the paymasters and potentially producing the personnel is all I can see because somebody has to go into Gaza when this is over and provide some sort of services for the people, not to speak of one day some kind of political representation for the people. I mean, that is also um, something that we shouldn't lose sight of uh, and is absolutely not in Israeli thinking at all at the moment. And Mahmoud Abbas is um, no spring chicken either. He is no spring chicken. He's over 80. Um, the Palestinian Authority is frankly weak. Um, many think it's corrupt. It has done a very poor job in the West Bank, albeit in the most difficult circumstances as Netanyahu uh, aggressively uh, increases Israeli settlement activity in the West Bank. Nonetheless, it's not popular in Gaza. Um, it doesn't feel to me very credible, except perhaps as, as a sort of cover for um, some more efficient Arab state-led uh, organization to provide the services that the people of Gaza so desperately need. You haven't mentioned the EU so far in this conversation, Peter. And I mean, traditionally in the past, the EU has provided the funding to rebuild Gaza after these kinds of uh, incidents. Uh, is there a, a, a lack of willingness this time round to rebuild Gaza yet again so that it... Uh, it gets demolished in, in X years' time. Well, I think the EU has another priority, which is the reconstruction of Ukraine. Um, Ukraine uh, is um, effectively now a candidate country to join the EU, which I think is quite right. One day, there is a massive, massive task, probably even greater than in Gaza, in the reconstruction of Ukraine once some sort of ceasefire can be reached there. And Ukraine is, is frankly, higher priority for the EU in terms of geography, in terms of proximity and the possibility of it being a member state of the EU. And that's going to, I suspect most of the money for that is going to have to come from the EU. The Americans, under a future Democrat administration at least, would probably continue to be the major military supplier. But I think they'd look to Europe for the uh, economic support. So 
So we're really, you know, at the limit, I think, of, of what is possible. And I don't see the EU, frankly, finding the tens or hundreds of billions of euros to rebuild Gaza. I think that has to be down to uh, the wealthy Gulf Arab states who have you know, been prepared to work with Hamas and uh, so on in the past and I think have a responsibility to step forward here, no doubt with support from the World Bank and other multilateral lending organisations. But no, I, I don't think the EU... I mean, we haven't actually discussed in this conversation either the EU or the UK. And I think that that is, in a sense, inevitable because both are rather on the sidelines, watching what's going on, expressing support for Israel, horror at what's happened to Israel, some degree of pressure for humanitarian pauses, but nothing like the level of diplomatic engagement and activity that we've seen from Washington. You threw some pretty historic times uh, in your career as a diplomat. How does how does this rank? The most difficult times, I think, for me, were the times when we had British military forces involved in um, major conflicts. So I'm thinking of Iraq and Afghanistan in particular, um, where we were losing the lives of British soldiers um, very regularly. This feels a very major point in uh, terms of future of the international order, if I can put it like that. Um, there are two wars, both of which are challenging the fundamental principles uh, of the Charter, um, and uh, both risk spreading if they cannot be contained and we can't reach a ceasefire in either. In the case of Israel and Gaza, I think it is the worst spasm of violence in the Middle East probably since the 1973 Yom Kippur War, and the one with the greatest danger of spreading into a wider regional conflict. So far, that hasn't happened. So far, I think American deterrence of Iran and through Iran of Hezbollah has worked, but it's not guaranteed that it will continue to work indefinitely if the current level of civilian casualties in Gaza continues. So I think we are at one of those points where the risk of wider regional conflict is higher than it has been for very many years. And how America plays this crisis, how it comes out of it, can it uh, succeed in at least influencing matters towards a ceasefire and also how it comes out of the war in Ukraine. I think that will really determine how the world looks in terms of national security for decades to come because either America will show itself still active and effective as one of the major players in trying to limit the consequences of conflict around the world or a nation that has failed to do so and perhaps under a future Republican presidency, retreats further from any sense of international leadership, which really does leave us in a world where might is right um, and, and small states around the world need to feel quite um, anxious about that. Final question, Peter. I, I don't you know you know well enough to know if you're a betting man, um, but uh, what is your bet as to um, how soon a ceasefire is likely to happen? I'm not a betting man, by the way. <laughs> I mean, I think we will see pauses beginning any time now to allow a degree of increase in humanitarian supplies and uh, injured people out. Uh, I don't think that there's, uh, it's possible for Israel to go on defying particularly America indefinitely. I think we are probably still weeks away from a ceasefire. And even if there is a ceasefire, it's going to be a very fragile and uneasy one, especially if Israeli forces remain in military occupation of Gaza. I think we may have a transition from an active hot war to a very uh, difficult 
insurgency kind of situation in Gaza with Israeli troops constantly being harassed by by militants in in Gaza. So I don't think it's a transition from hot war to stability, but hot war to rather less hot, but still very, very fragile and dangerous situation. Thank you so much, Peter, for joining us. Uh, For listeners at home, grab our latest issue of Prospect magazine, which includes our cover story by Khaled Mansour on the impact of the Israeli-Gaza conflict on the Middle East. And we've also got Avram Berg, a former leader of the Israeli Knesset, writing about his hopes that Israelis who favour peace will come to the fore. Uh, Also in this issue, we've got Priya Gopal on the future of the humanities and Sam Friedman on the COVID inquiry and much more. And you'll find Peter's article on the website. 